Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. Welcome back to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Ganinen and I am your host. Before we jump into today's episode, if you've enjoyed listening to Beyond the Wrench, show us your support by rating and reviewing this podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We want to thank you for listening. We really, really appreciate everybody that's out there. I've said it in the past, but the the podcast continues to grow, sometimes to my surprise. But it's all because of the great guests that we have. And speaking of great guests, in today's episode, I have with me Meredith Collins. Meredith is the Managing Director at Carlisle & Company. And I was recently a panelist with Meredith on a roundtable for for automotive news, specifically to the the fixed op side, and, and was truly blown away by by you, Meredith. It was really cool to be on that panel with you, and all of the insight and and uh, knowledge that you brought to that panel just uh, it it truly did blow me away. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today. How how are you doing? Oh well, thanks, Jay. That's very nice of you to say. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. I'm. Glad we get this opportunity to follow up and you know dive into a little bit more about what we talked about on that panel. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that too. So tell me a little bit about yourself. It, you're you're down in Austin, Texas. Yes, yes, I'm based out of Austin, Texas. I work remotely though. My company Carlisle is based out of the Boston area, or we have offices in a few places, but mostly based out of Boston. But yes, I've been in Austin for the last four or so years to be closer to family. That's cool. So do you make it up to Boston very often? I do, especially now that, I mean, now that travel's back on a little bit more, I'm going up about once or twice a month. So have a trip planned later this month and then, you know, a lot in the new year. So you're telling me... some cold weather. Yeah. Well, but you get to hang out in Austin and Boston, which doesn't seem fair. Those are two of like the best (laughs) cities in the nation. I know. It's not, it's not a bad place to be. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Yes, I grew up, well, I moved around quite a bit when I was younger, but spent most of my childhood in southern Indiana, actually, a town called Evansville, Indiana, oh, yeah. right on the border of Kentucky. Yes, yeah, so I am a Midwest girl at heart for, for the most part, but I went to school up in Boston. I went to Tufts, which is right outside Boston, and stayed there afterwards when I joined Carlisle after graduating in 2014. So Midwest girl, then moved to Boston, and then moved down to Austin to be close to family. A little bit of a culture shock going from the Midwest out to Boston. <laughs> yes, a little bit. I liked it though. I, I you know, I, I think, I think the Boston sort of personality suits me. You know, everyone's kind of minding their own business. I will say, moving down to Austin was a shock for me and my now husband. Like everybody's so friendly. Everybody's asking you about yourself all the time. It's <laughs> very different than Boston. <laughs> I can imagine. I, but that is that's cool, and you got exposure to different cultures and environments, you know, I think that there, there's a lot to be said for that. At some level, I wish I would have done that maybe a little bit more at, 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 I guess, growing up and going through my young professional life. But so tell me a little bit about what you do at Carlisle. Yes. Yeah, so I work on our insights team. So Carlisle is a, well, we have a lot of different aspects and we actually recently merged with another company. So our our official company name is Ducker Carlisle. And we do a lot of consulting and market research. And what I do focuses specifically on more of that kind of market research. So surveys and benchmarks and 
you know, metric collection. And specifically, my team is dedicated to the motor vehicle industry, and we work really almost exclusively with motor vehicle manufacturers. So car companies, you know, heavy truck equipment, agriculture, all of those major manufacturers are our clients. And one of the things that I've been focusing on in the last couple of years is our automotive technician collaboration, which is a group of manufacturers who are working together to address the technician crisis in the industry. So helping to recruit and retain technicians to their dealerships. So that's been one of my big areas of focus over the last couple of years. And we all have our hands full with that. There's a, there's a definite problem. We'll go into the stats here in a little bit. One thing I wanted to ask you about, what, what was was your background in math? Were you, I mean, how do you get from growing up in Indiana to, to where you're at? Yes. Yeah, it's a good question. So I did not actually, I studied cognitive and brain science. Oh, wow. Undergrad, and I majored in econ. Tufts didn't have a business program. So I sort of figured I'll study what I think is interesting and hope that I can get a job <laughs> doing something <laughs> also interesting. So I studied cognitive and brain science and really wanted to go into the consulting world though after school. And so Carlisle has, you know, a strong consulting presence and specifically, you know, being based out of Boston, they're a small boutique consulting firm. So I was really drawn to that kind of small culture. I didn't actually, I don't want to say I didn't care, but I didn't know a lot about the automotive industry. You know, I'm not a big car person by sort of growing up that way. But I thought the company was great. And I really wanted to work with those people. And I've loved it ever since. And so have grown to have more of an appreciation and understanding of all intricacies of of the you know automotive and motor vehicle world, we talked with our team internally about that same that very same thing, which is that the automotive and diesel world has a way of sucking you in and just not letting you back out. Like, yeah. like kind of once you're in, it's kind of like yeah, it, I guess this this is where I'm going to be at. Yeah, it's I think it's something that surprised me and surprises a lot of you know as more junior people come in, I feel like they have the same revelation that I did, which is. I never really considered how complex and massive this world is and how there are so many interesting problems that really take a lot of, you know, critical thinking and data to support the decisions you're making. So it it can really capture you and, you know, keep you interested and engaged across all of the different aspects, which is, is really cool. Yeah, and the opportunities are crazy. I mean, when you go from the OE level to the dealer level across the industry, I mean, there are so many opportunities out there for a young person wanting to get into this industry. We talk a lot about technicians because that's our that's our life. But mm-hmm. for a young person, I'm wondering if you've got advice for maybe a young person as they get into the industry it, that doesn't have that background. Was there anything that was surprising over and above that or any piece of advice you might have for a young person coming out of college or something along those lines? Yeah, I think that honestly, like reading industry publications like Automotive News and the Fixed Ops Journal or Car and Driver, you know, finding YouTube channels of, you know, people in the in the industry listening to podcasts like this, you'll you start to realize that there are so many different aspects and so many different avenues. Maybe you aren't interested in every single one of them, but getting exposed to, you know, what are the key challenges? What are the key trends? What's on the horizon? You know, it's such an exciting place to be right now, now that the automotive industry, I mean, the changes that are happening with EVs and, you know, autonomous vehicles, it's changing so rapidly. And it's really, you know, at the forefront of a lot of really cool technology. You know, I think staying on top of that and just sort of seeing what's going on really positions you to, you know, go far in the industry. 
Well, I think it, it, it's good advice for any industry or any job that you go into. The more that you can immerse yourself in it, the more that you can really start to understand the industry. I think that's where passion comes from, right? I think so many young people want to come in and just be uber passionate about it. And maybe they are at a face level, but like being able to really dive into the industry and ingrain yourself in in the industry by reading those publications and by listening to those podcasts, like doing those little things will make you so much more passionate about your job because you see all mm. of the different aspects of, of this world. And I think that's incredible advice. That's something we talk to our team about too, is just, you know, be curious, un try to understand things at maybe a different level. And I think whatever job you're in, that's just great. That's just great life advice in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and you know, this is something that we talk about too with you know, talking about tech managing technicians or sort of the dealership culture, you know, I think it's interesting that a lot of people think you need to have like deep technical expertise and understanding very at a detailed level, you know, what a technician's job is in order to talk to them or to manage them or to understand where they're coming from. But I, I would disagree with that. I mean, some information, of course, is helpful, but it's just like talking to them on a human level and understanding them as a person and then, you know, a person in the workforce and their challenges or what they care about really apply to any job. So it's, you know, it's easy to kind of think like this is so specialized. It's so complicated. I can't wrap my head around it when really it's, it kind of comes down to some basic, you know, aspects of anybody in a job. Treat them like human beings, like treat anybody <laughs> yes. like human beings. And I think you'll be, uh, you'll be far further ahead in, in, your, yes. in your career. And so speaking of that, I want to talk about, and this will be kind of the, the focus of our conversation today which is a survey that you had done regard to technicians and just trying to gauge satisfaction, trying to gauge. I mean, when you were walking through it in that panel and the statistics that came out of it, I was really blown away. And I want to start maybe by asking about why do the survey? And and I think mm -hmm. it's probably kind of a rhetorical question, but it's at some level, I want to get a maybe a little deeper understanding of is this just simply trying to get a, a really true good idea of what technicians feel right now? Yes. Yeah, so we, Carlisle, do the automotive technician survey every two years. So we most recently did it earlier this year. And we actually do it on behalf of our clients. So the automotive manufacturers and they, so they want to do this survey to better understand how they can support their dealerships and their technicians. So it asks, we ask questions just generally about kind of demographics so they can understand how they compare to the rest of the industry. But like you said, it's getting at satisfaction is really kind of the core of the survey and trying to understand, okay, where are there maybe problem areas? Where do we need to implement a new program or a new initiative? Or are the training tools that we're providing to our technicians sufficient? Or do we need to focus on that? So it, it helps our clients sort of understand where to prioritize their efforts and where they should be focusing, you know, trying to improve what they what they do for their dealerships and their technicians. Which is good. I mean, I think when we take this information and the data that you've come up with and make plans off of that and try to make changes off of that, that's how maybe we're going to start to see some of this shift. And mm -hmm. I, I'm curious as to you know, the, the, the shortage has kind of been here for a while now. It feels like every publication we read, 
we're reading something about the technician shortage. And I've, I've said this in, in past podcasts, but at some level, it, it's almost to the point of nauseation because it's just like every time you open something, you're like, oh my gosh, it's another right. story on the technician shortage. And I'm in this business, right? And I, I think when we look at this, this is the time where manufacturers, where dealers, this is where we've got to take action off of this information, right? It's great to read it mm-hmm. and it's great to understand it, but being able to kind of take that to the next step is is such a big deal. So with that being said, I want to get into the actual meat and potatoes of this. Let's talk about the survey itself. When when you look at this, who who's getting the survey and how are they getting the survey? Yeah, so we have we cover really almost every major automotive brand as represented in the survey. There are a few people who who at least didn't join this year, but for the most part, it's every car manufacturer out there. And we had close to thirty thousand responses from the survey, so really good coverage. I think it was something like sixty percent, you know, coverage of the brands who were participating. And the survey is distributed, you know, through to the the dealerships directly, and they can send it out to their technicians to it's an online survey that they can fill out but we you know we carlisle sort of design it in conjunction with our manufacturer clients and then kind of use their their contacts to to send it out i'm sure some of your listeners have heard of carlisle i (laughs) think a lot of them probably have yes yes (laughs) yes so so just know that people are are reading your responses and we really care about everything (laughs) there's people on the other end when you get them (laughs) yes there are that's amazing Video is becoming an increasingly important tool for recruiting technicians. Rentray Shop Talk videos gives technicians an inside look at what it's like to work at top shops across the country. Shops share all kinds of authentic, unscripted videos that gives an inside look at the shop's culture, people, facilities, and benefits of working there. You can also filter videos by location and category. To check out what it's like to work at shops in your area, visit rentway.com shoptalk. So uh, let's talk about, you know, when, when we're looking at the technicians and the demographic of these technicians, what are we seeing out of that? Like, who, who is our technician now? Yeah, so I think probably unsurprisingly, um, it is some of the key things that we're seeing is pretty overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly white. We're seeing sort of trending on the older and which I think a lot of people talk about kind of the, the great retirement that is likely to be coming. So not seeing a lot of newer and younger technicians necessarily entering the field. So I think in the last survey, the average technician has been in the job for a little over 18 years and 45% of the technicians have been in the career for 20 or more years, which is great to have experienced technicians. But if half of your workforce has been a technician for more than 20 years, you know, what does that say about what's going to happen when they start retiring and, and leaving? How scary is that? Because we are already battling this. This is already something that is a significant pain point for most shops, not even just dealerships, most shops. And we're we're not even to the brink of what could be, right? Like, I think we're like this, this is, we're just kind of at the tipping point right now of maybe something significantly worse. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this and this has been trending over the last several years. I think everyone has sort of been saying this is coming, this is coming, but we aren't seeing the tide shift in our survey results to indicate that there's a huge new pool of young technicians coming in. And so that's something that we, you know, really try to work with our clients on and push that message that you need to fill this funnel because even if you exclude all of the people who are leaving because they're unhappy or, you know, want to go find a different career, you have this huge group of people who are just naturally going to age out of the the career soon. This is where looking at some of the things like the fact that only 1% of technicians are women, that kind of comes into play because you think, well, that's a huge population of people that we haven't even touched. And so, yes, it's, you know, it's scary that there's a huge amount of people who are going to be retiring soon and they're aging out of the career. But why haven't we tapped this, this other population of people who are out there and can be fantastic technicians and they just aren't being recruited into the field. So I love what you just did there where we stated a stat and then a potential solution or a part of a solution, which is getting more than the, the traditional technician in, in the doors to which, you know, women are what 52% of our population, something like that, or overall population and less they're just over 1% of technicians are 1%. So to me, that seems like a, it, it, we talked about it in the past, but that is such a mind-blowing difference, right, between the, pop- the general population and the amount that are actually technicians. Right. And I think what you just said there, too, is an interesting point, the sort of, quote, traditional technician, because outside of the the gender split, there's also, if you think about the way that the career has really changed and progressed in the last 5, 10, 15 years, the technology that technicians are using the fact that a lot of it is on, you know, diagnostic tools and they're spending time on computers more so than kind of the like heavy lifting mechanical work that you sort of associate with, with a traditional mechanic job. So the role and the type of candidate that you want to hire might be different than it was previously. And that is something that I also think is not tapped into. So not even just thinking about women, but this whole other group of people who we maybe aren't really targeting today and we should be. Yeah, I mean, you throw minorities, women, maybe even taking a, a step even further than that is to look at those middle schoolers that are out there right now that might, you know, think that they're going to go into coding, right? Or they're going to be software right. developers, like being able to introduce them to, to the technology that is coming, I think is really, really important. And, and speaking to somebody that might not normally view this as a a true destination career to get them to maybe change their mind on that. Right. And and that's actually something that the the ATC, that collaboration that I was speaking to earlier, that's something that we focus on is actually middle and high school students and educating them and getting them engaged in the career because there are so many kids out there who are probably perfectly suited to what the actual technician career looks like today. And either they just don't know that because they don't have like the right perception in their mind of what the job entails or, and this is something that we found happens a lot is they, they may be interested, but then someone else in their life, like a parent or a guidance counselor or a teacher tells them, oh, you, you don't want to do that. That's not a good career. Or they, they've heard bad things about the technician career and they sort of, you know, encourage them to pursue other paths and, and not pursue that anymore. So. That's, that's a big thing we're focusing on is updating that perception out there in the public of what can this career look like or should it look like. It's a, that's a fantastic point. One of the other stats that I, I, I had saw that you had put out 
that I thought was fascinating was the opposite side of this, right, of the the aging technician workforce, which is only 5% have been in the job for under three years. That mm-hmm. is crazy to me. That like that is less like five percent. It, it when I saw that stat, it was kind of super discouraging. Right? But it is one that I think probably plays into the the percentage of the older techs because we're not we're still not bringing enough in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're not replacing the technicians that are leaving either due to retiring or like I said, they're just leaving the career for, for various reasons. We just aren't replacing them fast enough. So there already is a gap and it's, it's been, you know, getting bigger over the years and there's kind of, you know, unfortunately no clear indication so far that that, that tide is shifting. Yeah. And I, in some ways think we might be going a little bit backwards in, in cutting of programs, you know, high school, mm programs that have that currently have automotive programs or even tech ed programs in general. I just uh, had a nice discussion with the folks at Seattle Public Schools and they have, you know, two instructors, two automotive instructors for all of Seattle for high schools. And it to me that's like and in talking to some people out in that area, there had been some programs cut, there had been some things, but for for two people to try to teach or educate that many kids seems unrealistic. Like it, it, there's not every kid that even likes the the industry is going to get a crack at it, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I think we're seeing a lot of that. And, you know, it, I think some, you know, dealers and some manufacturers have, you know, really good ties with their local schools. That I think is one of the biggest things that people can do is have those connections and, and make them at their local level and actually get out in their community and or host open house events and really get in front of the students and like I said their parents and teachers these people who have a big influence on what career path they will ultimately take and the best way to do that is to get out there and and talk to people well and that visibility and showing support for that local program goes a long way we've done that mm-hmm. a lot locally here in Wisconsin and one of the things that I think is impactful is when you have these high, highly visible businesses, which a lot of automotive businesses are, and you're showing support for the program and you're going into those school board meetings, it does change the way they look at it, right? And a mm-hmm. lot of schools are battling budget issues right now. And I, I think having that influence in, in a, a school board meeting or at least having presence within a, a, and showing support for your program that goes a long ways, and it might not seem like it when you go to that advisory committee meeting, but having your presence and your voice there is hugely mm-hmm. impactful for that school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk one that I kind of want to move through the survey here a little bit, and this is always a hot, hot, hot topic, which is pay amongst technicians. We all hear it. We all see the posts on Facebook. We all see the scattering of comments throughout the internet in general. I I am fascinated to hear what you have to say about what you learned from the pay side of things. Yes, this is a hot topic. I think every time I participate on a panel or am quoted in an article, I get at least three or four emails (laughs) about flat rate and, and the impact, which I, for the record, totally agree with. So what we see is that 
technicians who are paid on flat rate, which is over 70% of technicians. So most of our auto technicians are paid on flat rate are the most dissatisfied of the technicians. So they about 25% of technicians who are on flat rate say that they're satisfied with their job and they overwhelmingly would not recommend the career to friends or family. So that's kind of speaks to them that recruiting piece, right? If they're dissuading others and they're telling people this isn't a good career. And that's, you know, in comparison to technicians who are on salary or other hourly plans that aren't flat rate are, are much more satisfied on average. So it's really kind of a stark comparison between the different groups. Any idea of like the difference between the, not to put you on the spot, but the difference between the hourly and the, the flat rate, like how much more happy are they? Good question. I don't have that number in front of me. Okay. I don't want to take a stab at it, but I'll say on average, the average technician or 30% of technicians on average say that they're satisfied with their career. And then this is 25% of those on flat rate. So they're below average. They're below kind of the general population of technicians who are satisfied. That's tough. That that is I mean when we look at it and you're you're absolutely spot on as it relates to what they're telling others or yet telling younger people like don't go into this career. This is not a good right. career. You won't be treated right. You'll be abused. That has to change. Like I don't know how we do, like if it's I, I, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of dealers that are willing to move off that flat rate system. It's almost like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I do see the one thing that could be a huge benefit, and I'm curious to see if you've heard anything similar, is that dealers are going to more hybrid type pay systems or being able to even have a floor for their flat rate people. So maybe mm -hmm. having a 40 hour guarantee for the week or, you know, whatever it might be. Are you starting to see some adaptation there amongst the dealer groups? Yes, I think that so the 70% this year of technicians paid via flat rate, I think in the last iteration of the survey, it was something like 75% of technicians were paid via flat rate. So it does seem to be that it's trending slowly in, in the other or away from flat rate a little bit. And we definitely hear from, you know, either the manufacturers who are piloting new programs with some of their dealers or individual dealer groups trying out different things. I think the guaranteed hours plus flat rate is at least a good transition model, right? Because if you, it can be hard to say we've been on flat rate forever and we're going to immediately go to a salary model. Because there's the concern that everybody has about lost productivity. So having that hybrid is probably a good stopgap. I do think that or what we've seen is the guaranteed hours plus flat rate is still not terribly popular with technicians as much as the, you know, regular just salary or, or base hourly pay. So I think there is still some of that, even if it's just a component of it that's flat rate, that some technicians won't like. Do you, do you get kind of pushback from even though it's stats you're compiling stats like it's data right like it, it but do you get in maybe you don't even hear the side of it but maybe pushback from that dealer principal or that fixed ops director that's out there that is you know just like anything if if we've done it this way for a long time it's worked really well we've we've you know made good money as a dealership mm -hmm. do you hear pushback from 
from the dealers when they see this information and saying that's not real or they like it like that's that's not how our team thinks yes yes i i think we do get pushback saying you know well i think the one thing that is very legitimate is that there are there is a subsection of technicians who are paid via flat rate who love it because they can earn way more hours than they're working, right? And so I do see that argument and I agree with it, right? It would be really tough to say you're going to make less money because we're taking away the system that has worked really well for you, which is why I would say not every technician needs to be paid on exactly the same methodology and you could tailor it. So I think that's the number one thing is that's an easy argument for people to point to is, hey, we have some technicians who actually love this and you know it would piss them off if we took it away. The other thing is there's some finger pointing, I think, between the dealer and the manufacturers on, yes. you know, the labor times. So, and it it is easy to kind of say, well, this would work really well, but, you know, this is the reason that I can't make it work given what I have control over. So that is also a legitimate, you know, point. But what I would say at the end of the day is the reality is that a lot of our technicians are not making a livable wage or they're earning a lot fewer hours than they're actually working. And no matter whose fault it is necessarily, or, you know, who should share some of the blame, it, it just isn't sustainable to, to have to keep pushing that model. You're all of the data that we've talked about matches the feedback that we get, right? Like that. So the, it's not just that this data is coming out of the, like out of left field and that it's all overly surprising but it does open my eyes to so many different things. And I think that is the, the cool part about data is that it's, you know, we're, we're relaying the numbers. We're not, it's not, it's not opinion based. It's not like we're just, we're asking people what they think. And this is, this is the data. This is what, this is what we're relaying back. And so mm-hmm. for, for those shops that are out there that might be a little bit apt to kind of just fight back against it. What I would ask is maybe to, to keep an open mind a little bit, like think about this a little bit more and don't get defensive over the data because it's just the data, right? Like it, you were just it, simply being able to relay you numbers to be able to evaluate and see if maybe that's a reflection of you at a local level. And mm-hmm. the finger pointing thing that you had mentioned I have heard forever between the dealer and the manufacturer and manufacturers I've heard. And it it just, there's, I think at some level where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Like that, that there's gotta be some way for some of the OEs to look at this and say, okay, are we doing like a good enough job at having realistic labor times Mm -hmm. for our people, even though it could have a negative economic impact on us as a business, it might be more of an impact by us not treating the technicians or the dealers fairly on the pay and trying to maybe even get an idea of, you know, our economic impact when we cut two tenths of an hour off of this job right. is this, but what you might be doing to your technician workforce is pushing them out the door when you do that. I, I, when you said that, it just kind of, it was like, oh my gosh, it's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it would be interesting. We haven't done this, but to sort of put together a business case of, you know, how much money are you saving on one end versus, you know, the impact to technicians? Because the the reality is that losing a technician is extremely costly. For We've run the numbers, and for, for a dealership, on average, if they lose a single technician, it's $172,000 in lost revenue that year. And then, you know, that translates back to the manufacturer as well, right, on the parts piece of it. So it's 
you lose a huge amount of money every time you lose a single technician. So you really have to weigh those costs against, you know, implementing a new program. And I think that, you know, comes into play as well when you think about a new pay plan. You know, if we raise our rates or we move off of flat rate and we pay on salary and, you know, here's what that new economic impact is, compare that against how much you are losing when you lose a technician. And the business case is pretty easy to make generally. I would love, there's so many layers to this, right? And I would love at some point to chat with an OE. I doubt any of them would do it, but any of you OEs that are out there listening, if you are up for the challenge, come join me. I would love to talk about this. But talking through the pressures of an OE, because you are public companies that are, you know, you're having your earnings calls, you're having all of this stuff that is separate from, you know, you, you need to run a really good business in order to get investment, in order to have a healthy company and, and carry steady cash flow and, and do all of those things as maybe a CEO that you need to do or an executive team. And it probably is easy to look at different parts of your business and say, okay, we need to cut here. We need to make sure that we're, you know, we're not overpaying somebody for a job, right? And I I think the pressures related to that part of the industry would be incredible. It, like because mm-hmm. you're just being pulled at all ends. And I I as we talk through this, that's one thing that sticks out in my head is you've got a bunch of different people that you've got to keep happy. And if you don't, you're going to have a maybe not as healthy of a business as you would like, but I, I feel like I understand the pressures. It just it would be fascinating to learn more about that side, how you manage all of that, because that cannot be easy. Yeah, I I mean, I can't speak on behalf of, of all of our clients, but yeah. you know, we, we get into a lot of that. And what I will say is I think in the last few years, manufacturers have, you know, listened to their dealers or at least a lot of the ones that we work with and understanding that you know, because historically, it, it, because the technicians are the dealer employees, they aren't manufacturer employees, there was sort of that separation. And, you know, so these are dealer employees, the dealer needs to, you know, address the issues. But I think a lot of manufacturers have really taken this very seriously in the last few years and, and are putting a lot more emphasis on trying to support their dealers and help address this problem where they can. So I think, I think that that's a really positive thing for the industry overall is everybody's really aligning and sort of coalescing around this crisis that's impacting everybody and trying to, to fix it and support the dealers how they can. That's good to hear. I mean, it, it is something that it, it's not going to be one organization or one group that just automatically turns this overnight. This has been a ship that's right. been going in the wrong direction for quite some time. And I think so much of the flat rate system is based on what the manufacturer says. And I think that's where the dealer comes in and says, okay, like, how are we getting cut? You know, I I had a technician call me up one day and said, Jay, I've been doing this for 20 years. I won't say the manufacturer, but they had like this engine job and they gave like six hours to do it. And he's like, it took me who I'm an expert level technician. It took me like 16 hours to do it, like double the time, over double the time to do the job. And he's like, there's no way, even in the most perfect ideal conditions that you could get it done in that amount of time. And when I worked for a manufacturer, and this was on the equipment side, they had things in order that maybe 
dealers didn't take advantage of, whether that was time studies or, you know, the warranty times and putting adequate stories behind those warranty times to be able to give the data back to the manufacturer so they could make an educated decision on, on how to pay. So there, there are some things that, that dealers can do, but then the technician complaint with that is I'm not getting paid for that time. And it's, you know, being able to give that feedback, I can't, like, I just don't have any time to do it. Right, right. And that, that gets into, you know, the stuff on workload and the impact that diagnostic time takes, or like you said, when you're working on warranty and you have to document, you know, in detail, everything that you did, take pictures, send that back. You know, a lot of times that is time that the technician is not being compensated for, but they're very much working. So that's, that's definitely a big area of concern as well. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Wrench. We'd like to take a minute to talk about this week's sponsor, Jasper Engines and Transmissions. Okay, your customer's engine or transmission has failed, but now is not the time for them to trade in their vehicle, not without a working engine or transmission. Besides, would they have kept their vehicle another three to five years if their engine or transmission had not let them down? If you answered yes, then Jasper Engines and Transmissions is your choice to give your customer vehicles new life and many thousands of miles of enjoyable driving performance. When considering the high cost of a new or newer used vehicle, there's a pretty good case to be made for replacing a drivetrain component that has failed or is delivering poor performance. Rather than trading in their car, truck, van, or SUV, install a quality remanufactured Jasper product for less than your customer would have to invest in a new vehicle or a newer used vehicle. Check out their website at jasperengines.com to learn more about the money-saving value of Jasper. So that's a really nice segue into workload. Let's talk about workload. That's a segment of the survey. And I think there where pay, there wasn't a lot that really kind of blew, blew me away. Workload was a little different. I, I thought there were some surprises in the workload side. Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned on in terms of workload for technicians? Yeah, sure. So I think the first kind of highest level thing is just we ask, you know, how many hours do you work in a given week? and compare that against satisfaction. I don't think that this is too surprising. I mean, in general, the more hours you work, the less satisfied you are. I think that's probably true for most professions. You don't want to have to work a ton. And that cutoff seems to happen at about 50 or more hours a week. So technicians who are working 50 or more hours, there's a huge drop off in both satisfaction and their intention to stay in their current job. And I would guess that a lot of that has to do with technicians who are on flat rate Again, because most of our technicians are, if they're turning, if they're on the job for, you know, 50, 60 hours, but they might only be earning 40 or 50 hours, you know, that, that has a huge impact on whether they think it's a good career to be sticking around in. Yeah. And I think in any career, you're probably comparing it to your, your buddies and, and what your friends are doing. And I think one of the, the real, tough things that we have to deal with was in, in going through COVID was there's this dangerous environment out there that, you know, people are getting sick and you're supposed to be staying home yet. We're still in the shop. We're still working. And it, it's hard because as a shop, mm -hmm. you, you have to turn those hours you, to, to have a viable business. You have to have, physical labor that is in the shop and they can't work from home. They can't do any of these other things. And I think that may even drive that a little bit further, right? Where if they see mm -hmm. their friends working at home and even in the automotive industry, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of jobs where people are working from working remotely or working in an office three days a week and have crazy amounts of flexibility. And we just can't get that in a shop. I think that that's got to contribute to some of that. Right. And I think too, you know, the increasing pressures of the shop being open longer hours or being open on weekends and, you know, people having to work shifts that they don't necessarily want to work. That's something that we've, we've looked into into the past and kind of the, the ideal, you know, workload or work definitely varies depending, you know, certain technicians are going to want certain things, but that's something that we encourage dealers to look at too, is, you know, what, just what do my technicians want? Like what's their ideal work schedule and how can I organize shifts or, you know, schedules around that? One of the major concerns for a flat rate technician is their diagnostic time, right? And not getting paid fairly for their diagnostic time or maybe in some cases not at all getting paid for their diagnostic time. And at some level, I feel like we almost punish our best, right? The, the, the ones that are really good with diagnostics maybe right. aren't being treated as fairly or perceived as being treated as fairly as maybe that B-level technician that can knock out a lot of undercar work. Talk to me about diagnostic time a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the, I think again, maybe not super surprising, the more time that you spend on diagnostics, the less satisfied the technician is. And this, the cutting or cutoff point seems to be if you spend more than 25% of your time on diagnostics, that has a significant decline in your satisfaction and your intention to stay in the career. So people who are spending, you know, a decent chunk of their time, like you said, probably not earning on that time are much more likely to want to leave the career. And exactly like you said, that it's that is not the new technicians ever. So it's not the junior people, the people who just came in. We're putting our, in some cases, our best, most efficient technicians on those harder jobs, and then they aren't getting compensated. And you know, someone else who's just turning easier jobs is you know making a lot more money than them. So it's it's this, it's this unfortunate you know kind of game of, you know, who you're putting on these jobs and whether they're being compensated. And by our estimates, it's, you know, thousands of dollars that technicians are losing every year due to time that they are not being paid for. So we ask them, you know, roughly how many hours do you work a week that you aren't being compensated for? And then can multiply that by the average rate. And it's, you know, $10,000 in some cases for, for technicians that they're kind of leaving on the table by, doing these harder jobs or, or not being paid for diagnostic time. Do you feel, and this might be more of a gut feel than a, a stat to point to, but do you feel like it's more that they they don't like not getting paid for diagnostic work or they just don't like doing diagnostic work? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually, I don't know that I know the answer. My, I mean, I would imagine that some people like doing the diagnostic work if they are really interested in kind of figuring out what the problem is. You know, some people are just like big problem solvers or love to, you know, figure out the puzzle. I'm sure some people don't like it, but I, I think it's probably hard to deny that the overarching issue is not getting paid for it. Nobody wants to do work and be on the job and, you know, supporting the, the business and not being compensated or recognized for that. And I, I think it's it's the money, but it is also, I think, the perception of, like, do you care about me and, and the job that I'm doing if you're not even 
recognizing or, you know, attributing this work that I am doing to me. Yeah. And that, I think we did a podcast, I don't know, a couple months ago where we talked about the importance of service advisors. And that's where having a really good, strong team of service advisors can help you out because if they can sell diagnostic work the way that they should and be able to to speak intelligently about diagnostic work, they're going to be able to sell more diagnostic work. And yeah. you're doing the work. There's no you don't go to the doctor and get checked out and not pay the doctor. Like they, they get paid regardless of what they do and regardless of how long it takes. But our industry has been so far behind in that regard in terms of how we charge, how we, how we bill and how we charge for that and how we sell that work. And I think when you have constant turnover with your service advisors, that can really have an impact on your technicians because then you're getting mm-hmm. fresh blood in that might not know how to sell diagnostic work. And that, that can be an absolute killer. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I, this is maybe going a little bit on a tangent, but we do ask in the technician survey about their relationship with service advisors, which has a huge impact on technician satisfaction. This is like one of the biggest drivers and it makes sense because if they think that they don't have a good relationship or don't communicate well, that directly impacts the money that the technician is making. And the number one cited problem with service advisors is that the service advisor did not collect enough information from the customer when, you know, on intake. And I think you can draw a line between that and then the amount of diagnostic time they have to spend, right? Because if they don't have enough information, they don't really know what the problem is. They don't know what they're looking for. They kind of waste some time looking for different stuff. And they think, oh, if they had just actually written down the problem or asked the right questions, that would have saved me an hour that I spent like looking around or trying to recreate something that wasn't really the problem. Again, that adds another layer to things. And I think it's really important that we talk about it, which is we've got to get better at taking care of our service advisors too, especially when you have a good service advisor. I think the general perception for a long time was that if one quits, I just replace them. They're easy to replace. I just keep keep replacing them. Unlike technicians, right? Our, our focus is so much on the technician side. But what you're telling me is that that service advisor has such an impact on the retention of technicians that we can't ignore that. We've We've got to take better care of our advisors. Yes, I will. To put that in numbers a little bit, five percent. There's five percent satisfaction amongst technicians who strongly disagree that they have a good relationship with their service advisors, versus fifty percent satisfaction with technicians who say they strongly agree with that statement. So overwhelmingly, way above average satisfaction for technicians who think they have a good relationship, and basically abysmal satisfaction for technicians who say they don't have a good relationship. It can make your and, life miserable. Yeah, and you know it's. Like I said, that $172,000 cost for losing a single technician, it's a little bit harder to draw the line exactly between how much losing a service advisor impacts your bottom line. But you have to think about sort of the trickle effects of, like you said, that turnover is very rapid. They don't spend very much time there. They don't do well with communicating things to the technician, and then that impacts the technician's turnover. So it might be a few steps removed, but you are losing a lot of money by by losing a lot of service advisors and not keeping you know that knowledge and and those relationships up. Was it was it you? I can't recall with the data that backed up the turnover in service advisors, whether it was 
in relation to turnover versus technicians. And I know I, I didn't prep you for that one, but like I think from what I recall, the service advisor turnover was far greater than technician turnover. Yes. Yeah. Ter- service advisor turnover, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's something between like 40 and 50% where, ser- where technician turnover is about 30, a little under 30% on, an- on average. So service advisors are turning over a lot more quickly than technicians. I think the reason that technicians, there's so much emphasis placed on technicians is exactly like you said. Historically, people have thought it's easy to hire a service advisor. I just need like a salesperson and technicians are very, you know, you spend a lot of time and invest in training them, but it, it is costly. I think people, kind of, it's sort of easy to overlook that. Well, service the service advisors I talk to, I think a lot of them really enjoy their job, but they work so many hours that they get burnt out and they are, you know, we talked about technician hours, but I think in a lot of cases, the advisors are working more hours than the, the technician to the point to where it's like, okay, like there's, it's, it's almost unhealthy, right? Like they're working six, 12 hour days or something like that, which, you know, is okay here and there. But like when you're doing it week in, week out, you're missing family events, you're missing weddings, mm-hmm. you're missing, you know, like birthday parties, whatever it might be, that just stacks up on you. And then maybe you're getting pressure from your spouse at home to, that you're, you know, you're missing all this stuff. You know, I think schedule flexibility would go a long way with with service advisors or having an adequate amount of service advisors to cover mm. the work that's coming in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a tough job too. I mean, if they're dealing with upset customers or, you know, tough or angry customers. It's not like their, you know, their 12 hour days are necessarily all easy. So it's, it's, it's tough for them. Yeah. And they're, I mean, they touch every point of the business too. They, you know, they're touching management, they're touching customers, they're, they're, they're touching technicians, like intertwined with everything. And I, I do think we do ourselves a, a disservice by not giving them maybe the respect that they deserve because it is, it, it's a hard job and you don't always hear from happy customers. I'll tell you that. And it, it is, I don't know. It, it, it's a job that I think we got to figure out the turnover there too, because if it's this mm-hmm. directly related to a technician satisfaction, especially if they have a good relationship with that, that service advisor, I, I, I don't know why we wouldn't spend more time on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that it has been relatively, overlooked in the past in terms of, you know, what training is out there and what resources are provided and, you know, what support do we give them, you know, on the job and before the job and things like that. And I think, like you said, I think it all comes down to the respect that we pay these positions, both technicians and service advisors and really anybody in the shop and recognizing that, you know, within a dealership, your shop is earning you, you know, a lot of money and um, profitability and is a big customer retention driver, you know, having good service experience has proven impact on intention to repurchase from the dealership. So, you know, just placing the importance on these positions and these jobs that are critically important to your dealership and to, you know, society, Keep, keeping our, jo- our cars running. It's important. And, and there may be being a little overlooked. Today. One thing I overlooked when we were talking about everything, and I know the technicians that are out there listening would be interested in this, is warranty work. And kind of swinging back to how we pay, warranty work is one of those things where we here 
people complain about it constantly. Is it going back to the same thing that we talked about flavor for labor rate in terms of the manufacturer dictating the, the times and and just the dissatisfaction because of that, because of maybe perceived unfair times? Is that, you know, is it kind of the same thing with flat rate as a whole? I, I think so. We, in terms of the information and the data that I have, that certainly seems to be the key points that we've hit on, which is, you know, the more time that a technician spends on warranty, the less satisfied they tend to be. And, and similarly, I think it's, you know, we hear reports and we get comments about the fact that the time it takes to record everything I did and to, you know, be compensated for the warranty work and asking for pictures of the job and asking me to draw a diagram of what I did is just stuff that one, most technicians weren't trained how to do. So they come out of school and have never had to do this or, you know, tell the story of, of what they did for the, the repair. And then they're sort of being thrown into it. And it's, a lot of paperwork, a lot of sort of, you know, bureaucracy around the the things that they maybe aren't being paid for that time that they're spending, which is, you know, an important component and the only way that they get paid for that job. So I think in some ways it comes back to the flat rate and being paid for it. But I think also there just is a sense of like, that's not the type of work I want to do. I don't want to sit down and spend an hour writing, you know, a story about what I did. So I think that's something that is is being addressed and, and being fixed in, in some places of trying to make that process a little smoother and less cumbersome for the technician. As we wind down on our time here on the podcast, I just want to get your general sense. Do you, do you feel like we're heading in the right direction as an industry? These are some a lot of unflattering numbers, right? There's a lot of things that are, I think if, if an outsider came and looked at these numbers, they'd say, why in the hell would you get into that business? <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think we're moving in the right direction? I think so. I'm I'm definitely optimistic. I mean, like I said, I think we've seen over the last few years manufacturers placing more and more emphasis on this. That ATC group that we we lead is doing a lot of good work to to try to change. Of course, not all not all technician jobs are created equal. There are dealerships out there who have a fantastic work environment, they have flexible schedules, they, you know, maybe have a different pay plan or, or, you know, accommodate their technicians in other ways. So it's not that the industry overall is in like a terribly dire situation and every job is bad. It's, you know, I think we're trending in the right direction. I think people are recognizing the importance of technicians and, and working to try to fix these things. And I think too, like I mentioned earlier, it's a very exciting industry to be a part of right now. The the work that technicians are doing is changing so rapidly. The technology that you could access to and get to work with. Um, you're, you know, if you're working at a dealership, you're at sort of the forefront of the new tools and technology that's being put on, you know, on cars. So I think there's a lot of positives to look forward to. It's just, you know, getting everybody on board and to see that vision so that we can all kind of lift the industry up together rather than, you know, having such a disparity between between places. I think the fact that we're having these conversations is so impactful from that standpoint. And I think the attention that the fixed ops community or the fixed ops world is getting now is unprecedented, right? I don't think mm-hmm. we've seen that ever in the, in the history of this business. And when we talk about the optimism moving forward, that's one of the things that really makes me a believer of, of this industry moving forward is one, we've got some really cool stuff coming. Like there's a lot of really great innovation. There are 
more discussions than ever about how to make technicians' lives better. I think the fact that the OEs are having those conversations as well and taking them seriously, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I could even go back 10 years ago. You go to, you know, as we record this, we're in December, middle of December, and contract time would always come up and it was talk about sales for 99% of the conversation. And, oh, yeah, by, by the way, how's the uh, how's the service department or how's the parts department? And I think it's elevated into becoming core to these, these dealerships. And I think that's what needed to happen. We almost needed to have our back up against the wall here a little bit to, to make some of the changes that were necessary. And I, as I see the industry seeing more and more of adaptation and changing in these dealerships and the service business as a whole, I feel like you're starting to see shops really start to change their perception and their outlook and and really take it seriously and take the Mm -hmm. happiness of their people seriously. And it's been one, we're almost six years into business for ourselves here at Wrenchway. And that's changed a lot in, in even that little, time that you know that little short period of time and so i echo and share your optimism with the industry because i think the cool part is we're actually looking at stats like this now we're actually having discussions around them and and it it's not just a oh we have to do it because it's part of the part of the dealership it's like these are powerful stats these are powerful things Mm -hmm. that we can learn from and and hopefully we're taking these these stats back to our shops and and changing things and making things better. And I think that's what gives me so much optimism about our industry moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, to your point earlier, of sort of a tendency to maybe be defensive about the stats or not believe them or something, you know, I, I think we're starting to see, and I, we hear from a lot of dealers that, you know, sometimes you need to have, be hit in the face a little bit with some of these numbers to really recognize, okay, this isn't going away. It is a big problem. You know, it's it's better to address it than to to ignore it, right? And pretend like it's not happening because it is, and and it could get worse. So I, I definitely think the the data is powerful, and we're we're seeing people use it a lot, which is is very encouraging. Yeah, and it's got to make it's got to be more exciting for you as you're gathering this data and you're doing all of this work to to be able to see that people are actually putting it into action and they're doing some things. So I, mm-hmm. I will say. It has been an absolute pleasure to be able to sit down with you for an hour and and pick your brain on things. The the stats that you guys collect are insane and incredible. So I appreciate the the fact that you you spent an hour with us kind of talking through everything. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was very fun. I I love talking about data and love talking about technicians. So it's it's been fun. Oh, how how do people find out more about the company? You can go to our website, duckercarlisle.com. If you visit Project Shift or goprojectshift.com, that is our ATC recruitment website that'll share more information on that important initiative. And you can find my information or reach out to me through the Ducker Carlisle website as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, Meredith. It was a pleasure spending some time with you and look forward to the next time. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. That wraps up this week's episode of Beyond the Wrench. Be sure to tune in next week for another brand new episode. As a reminder, don't forget to rate and follow Beyond the Wrench on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps us get Beyond the Wrench in front of other fantastic shop owners, managers, technicians, and dealers just like you, so we can continue to help improve, promote, and grow this amazing industry. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week.